If you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 13. A reminder that this is God's holy and inspired word that we now give our attention to. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that, it work, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, your scriptures, and we ask that your spirit would be with us, opening our ears, minds, and hearts, that we might see and understand and, and lay up your word within us. We ask that you would use it to conform us more to the image of Christ, that we would behold him for who he is, and that we would love him in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we enter into chapter 7, the events of this chapter uh, take place about six months later after uh, everything that's happened in chapter uh, 6. Uh, you have the fact here that uh, there's a lot of op opposition to Jesus. Of course, you had the crowd that, that fell away afterwards, but Jesus has made a lot of people angry with some of his teachings. And uh, there are a number of people that, uh, especially in Judea, uh, that desired to kill him. And because of this, he limits his ministry. He doesn't go about in those places. Uh, not that they could kill him unless God allowed them to, but uh, for this period of time, because of that open hostility, he limits his ministry to that area of, of Galilee, which is more in a, in a rural part of, of Israel at that time. Uh, in terms of the, the calendar of Israel, we have here introduced that there's this feast. There are three big feasts uh, in Israel's calendar that they observed each year. There are other feasts as well, but there are three uh, big ones. And this is one of those, the Feast of Booths, or sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus' brothers, they think this is a, a great opportunity. This is a great opportunity for him to go and appear before all the people, to do all these wondrous signs, and to, to get a great following and public recognition. But Jesus responds differently than we might expect. He shuts this down. He, uh, he talks about how this is not his time. And there's some reasons for why that's, uh, that's the case. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But we see particularly in this passage, Jesus is concerned again that he moves in accordance with the plan that's been established with his Father before the foundation of the world. It's not an accident what Jesus does. He has a, he has a job to do, and he's going to go about, and he's going to do that job as God has set it out for him. And that time has not come for him to go, to be crucified, and to complete that work, or even the, the time of his public glory yet. 
Not at this moment. But so he operates in accordance with the will of God. But one of the other things this passage brings up as well, and this is, a, I think, one of the most important things uh, that continually comes up again and again in John, it's this question again of Jesus' identity. Who is he? He talks a little bit about that here, about the, the hatred that people have for him. But we see also this question that's being asked among the, the Jews. Jesus, you know, he's a popular guy. Everyone knows his name. He's a, he's a topic of conversation, even if it's a little forbidden for them to talk about him. And they have this question. There's divided opinion. Who is he? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Is he a good person to follow and listen to or is he a deceiver? one who is leading the people astray. As we come to this passage, I want to uh, begin first with this suggestion from the brothers, and then we'll move through these, uh, these various topics along the way. We see in verses 3 to 5, the, uh, the, the Feast of Booths is here. As I mentioned, it's one of the three big feasts for the Jews in the Old Testament. The other two are uh, Passover, very famously. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Pentecost, or also uh, it's also referred to as a harvest festival. Uh, and the Feast of Booths, uh, Feast of Booths, the way it operates is it was a, a time when you would go and you would build shelters and you would le live in these little booths or tabernacles that you would build. And it was a reminder of Israel uh, regarding their time in the wilderness when they didn't live in a permanent home. Uh, and so it's a reminder now that you've entered the promised land, you've received you know, the, uh, that glory from the Lord to remember what you went through during that time of wilderness. And so this is one of those three big feasts. Uh, all the males of Israel are supposed to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this. There's all these uh, things that are happening publicly. And this would have been a great opportunity for Jesus to go and show who he is to lots of people. You know, already in the rural areas of the country, you've got thousands of people chasing him around, following him. Imagine now going to the capital with all these people from all over gathering around. Yeah, you could get all kinds of recognition, glory, a lot of people praising him if he goes and does some miracles in front of everyone. And so that's the, the recommendation the brothers are making. They're saying, hey, don't you, don't you want to be known? Don't you want people to know who you are? Don't you want people to follow you? Go, show yourself. Put on the show. Go and do some miracles before everyone. They'll see it, and then they'll follow you. That's, that's what they're, they're saying here. Don't stay here out in the sticks. Go and make, go, go be a public in front of everyone. Of course, then we see this verse 5, this explanation that the motivation of the brothers is not completely correct. In fact, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. That raises some questions as to uh, you know, how exactly should we view this suggestion. Some people uh, think that, uh, this may have been something of a mocking suggestion. As in, you know, yeah, go, you know, he's a, a weird brother who, you know, has this weird religious thing going on. You know, go, go do your own thing, something like that. Maybe it was, it was attempting to mock him or something like that. But I think, uh, along with a number of others, that this actually probably was sincere on their part. They did want him to go and perform miracles, but they didn't actually have a full understanding of who, who Jesus is. They viewed him perhaps as some miracle worker. Maybe they did think he was some kind of rabbi or, or prophet to a certain extent. We, we don't quite know all the motivations of what's, what's going on here. But they definitely didn't think of him as the Messiah 
the Son of God. And it seems to, in my mind, that the, the motivating issue here for the brothers is actually the same issue we've been dealing with all along, going back to chapter 6. It's all about the external. It's all about the go, do some fancy stuff, give us a, give us a wow moment. It's not actually about his teaching, about turning from sin and following him. They want a, a fireworks display. It reminds me of, if, uh, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, there's a, a character in the Lord of the Rings, a wizard named Gandalf, and he goes and he, he visits uh, these people who are called hobbits. They're these very simple people out in the, out in the country land. They're, they're short people, and uh, they don't do anything spectacular or adventurous. They're just very simple folk that go and live their lives, and uh, Gandalf will come by from time to time, and all they know about him is that he has the best fireworks. He can put on this great display of fireworks, and, that, and they love him for it. They've got no idea that Gandalf is like a, an angel character with significant power who's involved in the, you know, the highest uh, councils of wisdom in the entire world. They have no idea about any of that. They're just like, hey, he does fireworks. Yay. That's what they think about Jesus. The crowd in John 6, they want someone who's going to feed their stomachs. Yeah, you did a cool miracle. You fed us a lot of food. Can we do that again? Here the brothers seem to be thinking along the same lines, like, hey, there's going to be a bunch of people. Why don't you go and put on a show for them? They want Jesus to go. They want him to, to get his glory now, this, this earthly glory, this, this glory of just, man, he does some cool stuff. Win an audience, get fame, get honor. But this was not the time and this was not the way that God had appointed for Christ to get his glory. We're going to come back to that again in a few moments. But that seems to be the, the issue here. The brothers, they don't believe. They don't see who he is. And in fact, it's interesting. They're even giving counsel here that is contrary to God's way and God's will for Christ. And before we, we leave this topic, I want to bring out a, a brief application. A number of, uh, of authors have talked about this, and I found it uh, very striking. It's this, this issue of even Jesus had unbelieving family members. I mean, Jesus, the Messiah, the God in the flesh, the people who knew him best, his own brothers didn't believe. Now, at least several of them will believe later on. James, very famously, uh, will convert and become a, a leader on the church. But here, in this moment, they don't. They actually seek to... Uh, encourage him in wrong ways, in a way that would be dishonoring to God, contrary to God's will. And so the, the point is, as we look at Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus experiences all of the same kinds of things that we struggle and deal with in our life. He lost his entire following in John 6, when all of his disciples left him. His own family doesn't even recognize him or realize who he is or believe. You've got other places in the Gospels where you know his family is like trying to get him, and he's like, who's my mother and brothers and sisters? It's, it's those who actually believe and follow him. And it can be a hard thing when our earthly family doesn't believe in Christ or even sometimes works contrary to faith. To the faith. It is a difficult burden to carry. It's important for us to remember that our Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, as Hebrews says. He's a high priest who knows our weaknesses, he knows our sufferings. We can go to him 
We can go to him and find comfort. Jesus was even, to an extent, rejected. His own family did not believe and follow him. And there can be an encouragement for us when we experience and deal with those kinds of trials that we can go and find rest and comfort in our Savior. But moving back to the text here, that brings us to this response of Jesus. You've got the, uh, his brothers who are saying, go, get this, this earthly glory, get this earthly fame. Jesus' response in verses 6 to 9 is he says, no, I'm not going to go up. Now, he will go up eventually, but he's not going to go up with them in the way that they want him to go. They want him to go as this public spectacle. He goes in private. Now, it becomes public because, well, he's Jesus. You can't go anywhere in private in the Gospels with him because people find him and flock to him. But he goes later on in a private way, not the way that his brothers were encouraging him to. And he says here multiple times, he says in verse 6, my time has not yet come. And we see also in verse 8, my time has not yet fully come. And I think there's, you know, there's a couple things that this can mean. One is that... Um, it could be referring to the fact that, you know, this, this isn't the time for the cross. This isn't the time for him to go and do the, you know, the triumphal entry and, and those kinds of things. But I think there's actually something a little bit more going on, particularly tied with this feast. There's something significant with the order of the feasts in Israel's life and even how that relates to the New Testament uh, and the work of Christ. So, uh, of the three feasts, the order of is you have the Passover, then you have Ascension or the uh, the Pentecost harvest feast, and then you have uh, the Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths. And it's interesting that there are significant events in Christianity that are associated with all of those feasts. The Passover, of course, what's the event associated with that? The death of Christ. He's the Passover Lamb. He's the blood that's shed to save people from their sins from the from the angel of death. And you may remember, what's the, the next significant event that happens in the history of the church after the, the death and resurrection of Christ? Pentecost, which happens at the time of that second Jewish feast. What's Pentecost about? It's the time of harvest. It's the time of the sending of the Spirit. It's the time of this inauguration of this harvest period of the gathering in of God's people. And then after that, you have the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. And what's that feast about? That feast is about... God delivering his people from the wilderness, wilderness, taking them into the promised land, and it's a remembrance of God's work bringing them to that point. Well, that hasn't happened yet. That's not going to be completed until the time of harvest is come. And so for the, the brothers to say, come, come and have your glory now at this feast, the timing's all. This isn't what's supposed to happen. Jesus' glory doesn't come now. It comes later. They want him to take his glory here in the wrong way at the wrong time. It's similar to when, when Satan is tempting Christ and he, he gives him an offer. I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'm going to give you all this glory. I'm going to, you know, everyone's going to follow after you. All you've got to do is bow down and worship me. What Satan was offering is he was offering all the things that Jesus gets but early, without the suffering, without the cross, without the things that are necessary for our redemption. And Jesus says, no. The wrong time, in the wrong way, 
I think that's part of the part of some of the other things going on here. Jesus' glory is not ready yet because he had not finished his work. He had a work to be done, a work to, to purchase his people to begin this harvest. And then after, he's the one who is raised up and glorified. The one whose name is above every name. As we see in Philippians 2, he had to suffer before he's glorified. An application from this, of course, is this familiar theme of God's timing versus our timing. We've seen this a lot in uh, the book of Genesis, and we see it in other places of the scriptures, including here as well. The brothers thought this was a good time. It seemed right to them. It seemed to make sense. From an earthly perspective, this is, this is the way, this, this is a good way to do it. It wasn't God's way. It wasn't God's plan, and it wasn't God's time. It's important for us to remember, and it's especially interesting here. You know, Jesus recognizes this, and he lives his life in that accordance. Now, of course, he has the benefit of, he knows God's plan, because he's God. We don't know all of that. So Jesus has a little bit of a, you know, a, 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 it's a little bit easier for him to live by faith in this way than, than we do. But Jesus gives us a pattern to follow, to remember that just because human wisdom says that something's good does not mean that's the way that God wants things to be. Just drawing some, or, uh, some illustrations from Genesis. Remember, Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years before Isaac was born. Isaac and Rebekah had to wait 20 years. Sometimes God makes us go through long periods of waiting before he accomplishes his, his purposes. But his timing is always the best. It doesn't mean it's easy. It can be very hard. But we trust that our God is good. And Jesus recognized the importance that the timing needed to be the right time. And he followed that plan. And so we seek to follow the plan of God as well. This brings me now to this final section and I think one of the most important questions that you can ask and that needs to be answered. It's this, this issue that comes up. So Jesus, uh, there's this, a lot of conversation about him that's happening at this feast. And there's this question that's raised. Jesus, is he good or is he bad? You see, the crowd is, is split into two. You've got in verse 11, you've got, or sorry, verse 12, you've got some say he's a good man. He's a good God. He's a prophet. He, he does miracles. He teaches good things. He's, a, he's someone we should follow. But then you've got others who are of a different opinion, and they say, no, he is leading the people astray. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's teaching false things. It's interesting to see that throughout the entire, entire history since Christ's coming, there's been nothing but debate about him. This debate even continues today. Who is Jesus? Is he good or is he bad? Some say he's a good person, good teacher, good morals. Some people say that, no, he's not one who should be followed. I want to do with this, I want to also bring in this statement that Jesus makes in verse 7. Because Jesus reveals a little bit more about who he is, and he reveals as well why some people answer the way they do when they talk about him. He says in verse 7, this is part of his response to the disciples, he says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Everyone has to deal with the question of Jesus. 
It's a fact. He lived, he existed, he changed the whole world. I mean, the world, I mean, even the way we number years has changed because of Jesus Christ. You can't avoid the fact that Jesus is real, that he came and lived in this world and did things and, and all that. There's a, there's a change that happens in the history. And so people have to wrestle with this. And you have to, you have to, to, to come to a conclusion and answer to this question, is Jesus good or is Jesus bad? Now, most people today don't want to say that Jesus is bad. He says too many good things for people to just be like, no, you shouldn't listen to him. Most people really, really struggle to do that. So what do they do instead? What they do instead is they turn Jesus into someone different. They start to turn Jesus into someone else. You've got critical scholars who, uh, who debate, did Jesus even say these things, these hard things, these things about him being God and stuff like that? They, they try to say, no, he, that's not the real Jesus. He didn't say that stuff. That makes it difficult to follow. Some people, they try to turn Jesus into their own image instead of who he is, the Son of God. And verse 7, I think, helps explain that. The world hates Jesus because Jesus testifies about the world that its works are evil. Everyone likes the truths about Jesus regarding his kindness, his grace, his mercy, which are all very true and incredibly important because there's no salvation unless that's true about Jesus. But people don't like the fact that he also reveals sin. This is what was said earlier in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment. The light, which is Jesus, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were, were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The point of this is Jesus, not only is he kind and gracious and merciful and forgives sinners, that's true, but the thing that's necessary for that to happen is to recognize that we're sinners. There's no grace without confession. There's no, there's no salvation unless one is willing to repent. Jesus reveals our condition. He reveals our sin. And he is so loving and gracious and kind that when one repents, when one turns to him, when one cries out, have mercy on me, son of David, what does Jesus do every time? He has mercy. He forgives. He is kind and compassionate and gracious. But one has to be willing to admit that there is sin. And that means that Jesus reveals sin. Jesus testifies about the world that its works are evil. This is why sometimes he says in the Gospels, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. And we're like, well, how does that make sense? Because you're the Prince of Peace. It has to do with this, this spiritual aspect. He has come to confront sin, to convict the world of sin, and to provide salvation for sin. But you have to be willing to admit that you are a sinner first. And people don't want that. They want Jesus to be a kind and loving Jesus who loves them as they are without changing and giving up their sin. And if you try to confront them with that, if you try to present them with a Jesus 
who does take sin seriously, then they don't like that Jesus very much. And they join their voices with the crowd here who says, no, that's leading people astray. My Jesus doesn't do that. My Jesus is loving and kind. He's not going to judge people because of their sin. And they lose sight of the fact that Jesus will come back one day and judge the living and the dead. And he will say to people, depart from me, I've never known you. So this question about who Jesus is, is he good or is he bad? It starts with that foundation of who Jesus actually is. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The one who reveals sin so that sin can be dealt with and forgiven. That's who he is. And if your heart is one that starts to bristle at that a little bit, to say that, no, Jesus, that's not, a, that's not the Jesus I like. You're part of the crowd that's saying here, no, he's a false teacher. And that's a dangerous, dangerous position to be. But rather, let us humble ourselves. Let us recognize that if we bristle at that Jesus, it's because of what he says in verse 7, that our works are evil and they've not been dealt with yet. And the response needs to be a response of repentance, of coming to Christ, confessing our sins. And when we do that, Jesus is always ready to forgive, to embrace, to love, and to save. Jesus is the most wonderful person in the whole history of the world. There's no one like him. There's no one like him who can say, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you have to recognize that you're weary and heavy laden first. You have to be willing to confess your sins. But when we do, when we confess, when we realize that we are sinners and we go to him for mercy, hallelujah, he always gives mercy. So come to Jesus. Come to him and find that mercy and rest in your soul. Let us close this morning in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be at work in our hearts and lives, that we would see Jesus as he truly is, that we would love him, that we would embrace him, and that we would find our hope and rest in him. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to be at work in us, that you would use your word in our hearts and lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.